Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest is a journalist, groundbreaking media leader, and a career advocate for women. Cindy Levy is the former editor-in-chief of both Glamour and Self magazines. She was the driving force behind barrier-breaking initiatives like Glamour Women of the Year and The Girl Project, which supports girls' education. Cindy is the author and editor of numerous books, including the 2018 New York Times bestseller, Together We Rise, about the organizing of the Women's March. She has interviewed heads of state, Hollywood and fashion's biggest personalities, and iconic leaders from all walks of life. Her many awards and honors include recognition from the White House, the United Nations, and dozens of media organizations. She's currently a senior fellow at the University of California's Annenberg Center. Cindy Levy, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cindy, let's start with the op-ed you wrote for the Sunday Times now over a year ago. Talk us through the process, the mental process in deciding to tell this story at this time. The immediate impetus for the story I wrote, which to sort of give away the point of it, was called Let's Talk About My Abortion and Yours. The immediate impetus was the moment when Justice Anthony Kennedy announced that he was going to be retiring from the court and the speculation immediately became that this would create an opening for the courts to reevaluate Roe v. Wade. And as somebody who, like one in four women in this country, had an abortion, in my case, I got pregnant when I was 17 and a freshman in college and knew that I wasn't ready to be a parent and so made a decision to end my pregnancy, which is a a choice I've never regretted. As somebody who is among the one in four women, I felt it was important to put a face on this very important choice. But, you know, I had actually started thinking about saying something publicly about the fact that I had made this choice, which for me was not a very in-character thing to do. I'm not a super public sort of confessional person in any way. I'm not the kind of person who writes or says a huge amount about their personal life ordinarily. But I'd started thinking about it a few months before that because I'd been on Morning Joe, actually, with Cecile Richards, who was at the time the president of Planned Parenthood. And we were talking about women's activism. Subject didn't really have anything to do specifically with reproductive rights. And afterwards, I was looking at some of the mentions on Twitter, probably a mistake, (laughs) (laughs) Always a mistake. Yeah. If I were a more evolved person, I might not have gone there. But I I was looking on Twitter and I I noticed that there were just so many vile insults being hurled at Cecile. You know, they were calling her a baby butcher and, quote, this puke bitch. And, you know, the kind of things that obviously she's used to and, and has a thick skin as one, you know, needed to have in the job that she had leading Planned Parenthood. But Nobody was saying anything about me, which I was on the one hand grateful for, and on the other hand made me feel very cowardly because I realized that although the choice to end a pregnancy is such a common one, it's not one that most women speak out about, and we shouldn't have to, but the 
the result is that I think there's a public impression that it's very rare. And the spokespeople who are willing to stick their necks out and say, this is a choice we believe women should have, like Cecile Richards, end up taking so much flack for the rest of us. So that was the moment when I started to think, you know, gosh, I'm an adult. I'm not going to lose my job as a result of coming out about this. It's safer for me than it would be for many women to to tell this story. Wouldn't it be harder for politicians and pundits to demonize abortion if it were clear that the women who have made this choice are the women around us and among us? I mean, one in four women, that means one in four of the women who are sitting around you in church or your synagogue or whatever your place of worship is and the women who you work with, maybe the women you report to, you know, maybe it's the woman who cleans your house and it might be the woman who's taking care of your children at school or their pediatrician. This is a common procedure and I felt it needed to be a slightly more commonly told story. Since you wrote that piece and created an opening for women to be more public, have you gotten feedback and response? And do you see a change or a shift since then? It struck me that when reading the piece, you talked about celebrities not really talking much about it anymore. Most recently, Busy Phillips on her show Busy Tonight said, basically, the title of your article, let's sit down and talk about my abortion and kind of created that space more recently. But other than that, have you seen a shift since then in the last year? I definitely have. And I think what Busy did on on her show was really brave and triggered a lot of women to come forward using the hashtag, you know me, because right. a lot of people think they don't know anybody who's had an abortion. But I do want to just, you know, you were saying that my speaking out created this opening. I I think many, many people were speaking out long, long before me. And this goes back to the late 1960s and the early 1970s when this was a right that women had to fight for the last time we fought for it. And there were 343 well-known women in France at that time who signed a petition advocating for their right to legal abortion. And they they got called the uh, 343 salop or sluts for it. But, you know, nonetheless, the they did help secure the legal right to abortion in France. And then subsequently, a group of women came forward in the early 70s in this country in Ms. Magazine and wrote a story called We Have Had Abortions and signed their names to it. Everybody from Gloria Steinem to Billie Jean King. So many women for years had been public about this choice. And I remember when I was an early teenager, the actress Allie McGraw from Love Story, kind of an American sweetheart, was on the cover of People talking about her own illegal abortion back in the back in the days before Roe v. Wade. And she told this very moving story that I remember to this day about how she had discovered after she had her abortion, or maybe around that time, she found out that her mother also had had an illegal abortion. But then after a couple of decades after Roe, and especially after the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case in the early 90s was decided, there was, I think, a sense among many women that this right was secure. And consequently, I think, less willingness to sort of air our most private decisions. And you saw women stop talking about it quite as as publicly. And then with the rise of the very extreme and often violent anti-choice movement in this country on the right, it became 
very dangerous or dangerous feeling to speak out. I mean, you entered an era where abortion providers were being threatened and in some cases murdered for providing this legal procedure. So it's perfectly understandable why more people weren't willing to come out. And I want to give incredible credit to the women who continued to speak out during that time. I mean, writers like Lindy West and, you know, many celebrities like Vanessa Williams, well before this moment, well before the moment we face now where it seems like a very real possibility that Roe could be overturned. Many, many women were very, very public and their courage definitely emboldened me. Cindy, one of the things that the pro-choice movement uh, and Roe v. Wade was based on is the right to privacy. And many women have taken that to heart and don't feel like they need to share. I think one and of they the, don't. And they They're don't. They're right. Right. And it, and it, but I think one of the arguments you've, you, you're making here is that because this has been a privacy uh, argument, that the narrative has been lost and that somehow it, there's a stigmatism that's held on longer than maybe some other things. Does it need to be reframed as something other than privacy, as a different kind of right that, that women have? to control their bodies versus the ability to keep something private? First of all, the whole legal debate over whether or not the right to privacy is the right way to frame Roe, and I leave that to others, certainly. I believe that it's on a moral, not legal, level. I don't think it's just about the right to privacy. I think it's about women's right to control their own destiny, and I think personally feel that it's an essential part of women's equality and, and our personal dignity. I certainly don't think that it is incumbent upon anybody to air their most private choices and decisions for the world. So I'm in no way saying people need to come out about this choice. We all need to wear it on on T-shirts. Everybody feels differently about the choices that they've made, and we shouldn't have to explain that to anybody. At the same time, I do think that the fact that so few people talk about it, and for years we're really made to feel like terrible, villainous, selfish, immoral people, if they did talk about it, has led to some very popular myths about abortion. For instance, most people, and especially most male people, believe that abortion is much less common than it is. I mean, the majority of people in the last poll I saw believed that it was less than one in five, under 20 percent. And in fact, one in four women in this country will make this decision before she turns 45. Also, people tend to vastly overestimate the risks of abortion. And that might be because when you see abortion in movies and on television, it is much more deadly for women than it is in reality. I think women on TV are 7,000 times more likely to die after having an abortion than than in reality. It was a very, very safe medical procedure when when legal. Shonda Rhimes did a nice job demonstrating yes. that in, I think, season two of Scandal, mm-hmm. or maybe it was later on, but she showed a safe, successful abortion. Right, which among other things shows why it's so important to have women in charge of our creative content al- alongside men. So yeah, there's that idea that it's more dangerous. And then I think a lot of people think like, oh, women who have abortion are not cut out to be mothers or they're too selfish to be mothers. And in fact, the majority of women who have abortions already have at least one child. It's not even like, I mean, in in my case, I feel that the reason I was able to go on in my life and get to a place where I could have two children 
who I was able to care for and provide for as I, as I do now was the fact that I was able to make my own decisions earlier. But the majority of women actually already have a child. And I think, you know, all of these things just add to the reality of this choice. And I think one of the things that comes when real people tell their stories is that it's it's harder for these myths to live on. I want to ask you about the conversation and, and women are, some are telling their stories, some are choosing to remain private. But what's the best role for men here? Mm. Because I have, I'm from Georgia. I have friends on both sides of that aisle mm-hmm. that voted on both sides of that law. One half of them are much louder about what they think and feel and believe. And I've had many conversations with left-leaning male friends recently that say, you know, this is not my role. I'll support you, but I'm going to be quiet. And I don't know what I think about that, but I'm curious what you think the best role for men to participate in this conversation is or at all. I personally think men should advocate for women's right to make their own decisions here. I guess some men get confused by the idea that, well, if this is women's choice, then this is just a woman's issue. But, you know, I can tell you, I don't think, I mean, I didn't get pregnant by myself when I was 17. (laughs) Shocking. Yeah, right. And I don't think the guy that I was with was ready to be a parent. And I think a lot of men have been able to live their own lives according to their wishes because of a partner's decision to end a pregnancy that neither party was ready for. I don't think that you need to be a guy who's gone through this in order to advocate for the right. My husband is deeply pro-choice in part because he can see the life that it opened up for me and for our family. But I, I do think that this is something that needs to not just be on women's plates. Men, 100%, if you believe that this is a decision the woman in your life or the women you care about, the women in America should be able to make for themselves, then you should be out there in the streets alongside us. Do you think there's some sense that that women hold back in telling their stories because they worry about what the man in their life might think? Mm. Yeah, I, I do think probably a lot of women, they fear judgment from lots of people and, you know, including the men in their lives. I also think it's important. It's not just about who your romantic partner is. I mean, I told my son what I had gone through when I was a a teenager. He's 14 now, and I wanted him to know that, like, this is something that his mother dealt with. It can definitely be scary. And, you know, I one of the reasons that I would never say every woman should come out about this choice, in addition to it just being such a private decision, is that for some women, it's not safe to tell a partner this. And that's why this needs to be women's choice. You could be threatened with bodily harm for making a decision that your partner doesn't agree with. But I do think that in general, sharing with the men who love us and in a child's case, depend on us, what we've gone through and the choices we've made helps them understand how fundamental this right is. I wrote a, what I thought was a very provocative piece for CNN.com where I argued that male politicians who are arguing for, you know, heartbeat laws and closing down all abortion clinics and making it illegal should have to be public about what their participation and activity around abortion is. And it's interesting. (laughs) Meaning what kind of participation? Meaning who did you get pregnant and whose abortion did you pay for or advocate for or participate in? 
And it it turned out it wasn't very provocative and it didn't start a conversation, which I'd hoped it would. What do you think? Well, I think you get I mean, I don't know that I would sit here and even though that would be a delicious thing to see, it, I'm not sure that I would sit here and argue for, you know, anybody needing on a compulsory basis to cough up data about their their personal life. However, I think what you're getting at is the fact that this cause is often embraced by people who are not necessarily so deeply, staunchly anti-abortion themselves. You know, it is used by many politicians as red meat, something that will like bring out their base and bring out all the the Twitter trolls and rile people up enough to elect the politicians that that they want elected. But your image of somebody who, you know, grows up Catholic and has deeply held views about the sanctity of human life, that that's not necessarily who is supporting all this legislation and and you know financially backing it as well. You mentioned telling your son, but I wanted to ask you about the the end of your piece. There's a really powerful moment where you talk about telling your daughter about your experience and your choice. And I just wanted you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was very emotional. I mean, partly because, you know, it involved me telling her about a particular moment in my life. The year that I was a freshman in college, which is the year that I got pregnant and had the abortion, my mother, who had raised me herself, it was just the two of us in the house, was dying of uterine cancer. She ended up dying the next year. And so there was just so much sort of drama and loss in my life already at that time. And so I was, I was telling my daughter about what I was going through and, and helping her understand why I wasn't ready to be a parent at that time. That was an emotional experience. And I was also nervous. Like I was nervous that she was going to judge me and I was nervous about what she would think. And she was, and it's emotional for me to talk about it now. She was so accepting and she literally wiped my tears. And, you know, it was just, it was very affirming and made me really proud of her. It also reminded me, again, sorry to be emotional, it reminded me why, you know, this is so important. I think it was Cecile Richards, actually, who said, no, nobody wants their daughter to have less rights than they did. And that's the position where we are in this country right now. And that's enraging. Can you talk a little bit about how the experience was the same or different with your son? Because this is a conversation you have to have with sons and daughters. (laughs) I think it was the first of what will probably be many conversations. I mean, he's younger it was a shorter conversation. I don't think he was quite as emotionally engaged. My my daughter, she was 15 when I told her. She's 16 now. She's not that far off, honestly, from the age that I was when I made this choice. And I think it felt realer to her. I think with my son, it probably seems a bit sort of far off and theoretical at the moment. But we will revisit it. As with so many parenting issues, you yeah. got to have the conversation many times. All right, Joe, I know you're busy and don't have time to read or in some cases reread all the books you'd like. And you just discovered an incredible new app and it's called Blinkist. Yeah, Katie, Blinkist is quickly becoming one of the most important apps on my phone. Blinkist is really unique and it works on your phone, your tablet or your web browser. Blinkist takes need-to-know information, the key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. If you read a lot, 
but still don't get to have time to get to everything you want, Blinkist is made for you. You'll get the key points of a book in just minutes. So with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute or on your lunch break or while you're exercising. And 12 million people are using Blinkist right now. And it has a massive and growing library from politics to current events to history books and even topics like business and health. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers lists, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to or were supposed to read in high school. I know you just started using it, Joe, but you've had a great experience so far, it sounds like. Yeah, I was writing a column for CNN, and I was talking about a book I had read several years ago, and I frankly didn't have time to reread it. So I just went to Blinkist and in 15 minutes had all the key takeaways. So from Michelle Obama's Becoming to Russian Roulette by Michael Isikoff and David Korn to Rick Wilson's Everything Trump Touches Dies, with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash words matter. Try it free for seven days. And save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash words matter to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also get 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash words matter. So as editor of Glamour, you probably were one of the foremost experts on what women think. Deciding what went on <laughs> if the If you yeah, say so. <laughs> yes. De- deciding what went on the cover in every edition, what the book would look like. Over the years, has there been a change in the way women look at this issue? Is this something that will motivate women to act politically? It's something that many women feel passionate about, and in fact, most Americans support. The usual statistic that you see is that seven in 10 Americans support a woman's right to safe legal abortion, which makes it honestly one of the most popular positions of the Democratic Party. So it's not something that women have been, you know, hugely conflicted about as a political right. You might be conflicted about it personally or conflicted about what you would do. But, you know, in terms of saying whether or not it should be legal, that's not something women have been deeply conflicted about. But I do think that there's been a sense in the past, if you go back, you know, 10 years, 15 years, that like, this is something that is there for us as a right. So we don't actually need to be that vocal about it. And and then because so many women weren't vocal, I think there was sometimes a feeling if you had had an abortion, like, oh my gosh, am I the only one? People aren't talking about it. And I think part of What's happening now that is positive is that there is a sense of sort of solidarity among women. There's a sense of community. I hope that for any woman who is making this decision, whether it's an easy decision for her or a a hard one, no matter what she decides, that she can now see that many women have been there before her. And, you know, to your question of will women turn out to vote on the basis of this, absolutely. Just look at the the marches and the protests that we've seen as these quote-unquote heartbeat bills, a name that is a misnomer because at the six- or seven-week mark, there is no heart. But 
these as these bills have rolled through Kentucky and Georgia and Ohio and then Alabama with its outright ban on abortion and this week Missouri being on the verge of closing its only remaining right. abortion clinic women have taken to the streets already and you know I think they were particularly enraged by the you know now notorious image of the all white all male Republican panel that had voted to confirm the abortion ban in Alabama. So let me push back a little bit on that because Mm -hmm. we have plenty of issues that are popular with Democrats. Gun control was in the 80s, abortion rights um, in the 70s. 52% of white women voted for Donald Trump Mm -hmm. in the last election. How is that possible given that this is an essential human right for women? Listen, not all women believe the same thing. Obviously, women are not a monolith. But I think the important thing to remember about 2016, besides the fact that, as we all know, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, and that is even with well-documented Russian interference, the biggest voting block in this country is the non-voter. So if more women and men who care about this, who may not have cared to turn out in 2016, turn out, then we will be in a safer place. I want to ask you a little bit about your time at Glamour. When you were there, you brought the readership to a record, I think, 20 million across platforms, and you brought to the forefront a lot of issues like domestic violence and health risks of breast implants and women's health in general. So how difficult was that to do at the time, and what was your goal in kind of bringing these things to the forefront at that time? The goal was mainly to make the the magazine and then the the website reflect the conversations that women were actually having. Like the the way we were able to do that is not like, oh, I have some secret liberal agenda that right. I'm trying to force on the women of America. It was that women all around us were having challenging, provocative conversations about all of these issues. At one time, I think the thinking used to be that like, oh, if you're a beauty or fashion magazine, stay in your lane and, you know, your lane is lipstick. And we always used to say, well, you can talk about lipstick and legislation in one <laughs> That's conversation. That's a good book title. Your lane Lip- is lipstick. Yeah. <laughs> but our lane was not just lipstick right. <laughs> and nothing against lipstick. But if the women that you know can sit around and talk about everything from, you know, fashion to beauty to their salaries to their health rights to the world we live in, then why can't a brand address all all of those things. And I don't think for most of our readers that that was a particularly radical concept. Most of the grief we got was from more like male-dominated mainstream media and media critics, but women were down for it. Were there any no-goes in the publication world, the areas you couldn't talk about, even, I don't know if abortion was a part of the publication that have changed now or that are still no-goes? Or I do think that women's magazines and media in general have done a great job of leading on so many issues. I think all my former peers in that space, from Glamour to Cosmo to Elle, are doing daring, important, and very reality-based reporting on all aspects of of women's lives. So I think there's plenty of amazing stuff out there. I mean, would I have written the piece that you were quoting from before in the New York Times about my own abortion while running a brand where I was responsible for so many other people's livelihood and a bottom line that ultimately was not mine to play with. I was not the owner of the company. I don't know. I'm not sure 
I would have felt free to, but I'm glad I did. Let me finish with a couple quick questions. One, looking forward, are you optimistic that things are going to get better or are you pessimistic? Both. Why? I mean, I don't think you can be overly optimistic right now because the short-term prognosis is is rough. I mean, we have a, a president who still mystifyingly enjoys the support of his party. We have laws that, you know, to to me and to so many women in this country feel and seem misogynist that in no way reflect the best interests of the vast majority of American women. And I'm not just talking about reproductive rights. I'm talking about equal pay and racial justice. And and so it, I think it would be impossible to look at all that and think, you know, oh, well, we're going to take to the streets and it's all going to be fine. Absolutely not. This is a marathon and not a sprint. I think the thing I feel optimistic about is the energy and commitment that I see among women and particularly young women and women's willingness to say, I'm not going to sit around and complain about the world or wait for somebody else to make it better. I'm going to do it. Last question. Tell us what you're working on. (laughs) A couple different things, but I am, among other things, writing a book. It's about women and I'm telling it through, it's about progress for women and I'm telling it through looking at my mother's life. She was a biochemist back in the day before oh, wow. a lot of women went into science. Yeah, she used to come home and talk at the dinner table about lipopolysaccharides and like what happened in the centrifuge that day. And wow. I would be like going to my happy place in my mind. I had no interest in science. <laughs> but I'm looking at, you know, her working life and my working life and what changed and also what didn't change in the generation oh, in between. Oh, interesting. Well, we hope you'll come back when the book is done and we can talk about it. Consider it done. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. That was an incredible interview with Cindy. And we're so grateful for her to share her story and how she shared that story with the others in her life, including her her children. And Joe, that's really just the beginning of our conversation about this issue. Yeah. Listen, I think Cindy referenced the shifting landscape of the abortion debate. And that's right. Since the passage of Roe v. Wade, there were a couple decades of kind of equilibrium. The pro-choice people and Democratic politicians were kind of reluctant and pushing. They felt like they had won uh, the war. And I think many Republican politicians had realized that, no, it was just a battle, but the war was to be waged. And that's very different now. The Supreme Court nominations of uh, uh, that Trump had has really framed this issue now as a defining issue. There was a poll out of Iowa likely caucus goers and that really caught my attention. The number one issue, 78% said was abortion, not honesty in government, not defeating Donald Trump, not jobs, not the economy, not trade, was abortion. This campaign is going to be a rallying cry for the progressive ideals. And I think it'll be led by women, but they'll have a lot of men marching behind them. And I think one of the things that we will do is try to break the mold or the caricature of what abortion is for women. It's not a big deal. I think Cindy's story is powerful about how she dealt with it, but there are millions of other stories. I think our job is to let women tell it in their own voice between now and Election Day because I think people should hear these stories before they decide who they're going to vote for next time. We're going to hear from a number of women who tell their stories. They're not going to tell you who to vote for. They're going to talk about what the circumstances were in making the decision, why 
it was the right decision for them and how they've dealt with it since. And I, I, it's, it's certainly my hope that people will see this in a much more contextual, deeper way than the typical debate that we've seen over the last 30 years. That's right. And in the stories that we will be featuring in the coming months, we recognize that we have featured just one story so far. And and that story was from a white woman who had the ability to and had access to an abortion. But there are many different parts of this story, including tales from black and brown women who have an entirely different perspective on this issue and experience different elements of of adversity in trying to obtain abortions and in in securing that right for themselves as well. So we look forward to including black and brown women in this conversation and recognize for our listeners that we have not yet. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.